One lesson I was always taught is um, breathe before your body tells you you need to breathe. You train at the crack of dawn, so you've got to get used to getting up every single morning and then going and putting yourself through training that I would often compare to hell. <laughs> I know a lot of people say knowledge is power, but I actually think naivety is sometimes power. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com ladies and gentlemen it's my pleasure to welcome back to i almost said to welcome back to bumble but to welcome back to unstoppable ladies and gentlemen we have michelle battersby thanks for coming back Thanks for having me. Well, back to Bumble would be an interesting one, but that, happy to be back to Unstoppable. <laughs> that would be. But um, listen, for those people who maybe uh, are wondering why I'm welcoming you, welcoming you back, we actually tried to do this the first time. The first time we did this, we had a brown out here in Byron in the studio uh, and we lost power. And so unfortunately, we couldn't complete the uh, uh, the interview. But I've kind of got this philosophy for Michelle. I don't know about you, but whenever I, whenever something doesn't work the first time, like I always just know it's a sign from from uh, whoever it is to do it the second time because I know I'm going to do a lot better the second time around. So I'm pretty pumped for this. So um, with that in mind, look. Yeah, that can be a practice. <laughs> I know, right? Because I think you, I think, let's be honest, I was a little bit nervous the first time around. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, I've I got to say, look, when I, go through your, when I go through your history, you have done so much. And, you know, I know last time that we spoke, we kind of started where it all began, which is really kind of back in school for you. But um, where I really want to start with you is your discipline. Because one of the things that I've noticed with you from the, just the, the couple of conversations that we've had and the, um, and the, 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 the little, little bit of research that I've done on you here, you're someone who's achieved an incredible amount in a very short period of time, especially in a profession that is typically dominated by a lot of male personalities, maybe in the marketing space more than the HR. So when we look at you from a discipline perspective, like where did it all begin from a discipline perspective? Because when I look at everything you've done, there's, there's no shortage of grit, there's no shortage of resilience, but where did that all come from? So that definitely came from sport. I have always, well, I can't say have anymore because I don't do any sport, but when I was growing up, I was extremely invested and committed to sport. So uh, and what was I your grew up in sport? a family... Well, rowing, it ended up being. So rowing is a sport that is when you not... say that? Because you said this last time, you're like, rowing. Yeah. So what, what's that all about? Did you? Well, because it's just not a very enjoyable sport. Um, like, I don't think many people do it because they, oh, I don't know. For me, it is so hard. Yeah. It is physically extremely challenging. You know, it's like sprinting and you holding a sprint pace for seven minutes. You don't hear minutes. anyone ever saying, oh, I'm just going to go for a row, do you? You know, you hear people say, I'm going to go for a ride. <laughs> I'm going to go for a walk. I'll go for a run. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you just had to push yourself so, so hard. There's no point within a rowing race where 
it's enjoyable and you can relax into it. You tell yourself that there is a point where that comes, where you relax into the rhythm and you can keep pushing through. But every single stroke is just as hard as the next one. Um, And it's just about holding this really, you know, it's an endurance sport, but it is honestly like just going as hard as you possibly can for seven minutes of a race. And you know, you train at the crack of dawn. So you've got to get used to getting up every single morning and then going and putting yourself through training that I would often compare to hell. When you think about this, because I thought about this after we spoke last and I was like rowing, because again, a lot of people don't really look at rowing as a, as a, you know, in many respects as, a, as, as what you'd call a mainstream competitive sport. But when you look at it from an endurance sport, it is actually quite mentally, not just mentally, but physically very like, um, what's the word? Mentally rigorous, would you say? Is that like, it seems quite punishing yeah, yeah. on a physical and a mental level. Yes, it is. It, it honestly is. And even, you know, like all of the testing to get into these crews, you know, like we used to have this thing called Erg Week and Erg being a rowing machine and it ran over a one week period and each day was a different test and it got harder and harder. And it was a 100 metre. The next day it was a 500 metre. The next day it was 6K at open rate. Then it was half an hour at set rate and then it finished on a 2K and that would decide, you know, if you're getting into the crew or not. And that's just five days of absolute hell. Um, but <laughs> you mentally have to prepare yourself for that. And you're obviously training um, to to be able to do that. But I think what I learned from rowing was a lot of self-talk. Yeah. So you don't obviously speak to anyone when you're in a rowing race. All you hear is your coxswain, you know, like giving you the calls and steering the boat and you take instruction from them. So they're basically just screaming at you um, to get the best out of you. But it really is a lot of mental um, self-talk. And I definitely often fall back to so much of the self-talk I used to do in a rowing race to like mentally prepare myself. What does that sound like? Like, Do you have particular words, phrases, commands that you use? A lot of it was about breaking things down. Um, So creating certain checkpoints um, within my mind. And once I'd hit that checkpoint, which was normally a distance, I'd transition into a different way of thinking about it or even um, in a training session, if we were going to go out and row for 14 Ks, I would really break down those 14 Ks and just come up with like little landmarks that I knew um, were around and I'd push myself to that, you know, and then I'd, it, it's basically like it would restart in my own mind. So it was never the whole thing I was looking at. It was definitely just breaking it down to make it an easier mountain to climb, I guess. <laughs> But I, I would assume on come race day, it's a lot easier for you to get your head in the game and to compete because you have so much on the line. But the the races in any sport, but especially in racing in rowing, they're not they're not won on game day. They're won in training. You know the relentless, you know the mornings, the hours, and over and over and over. And so outside of you breaking things down from a you know a one bite at a time kind of perspective, were there any other little mental hacks that you would have for yourself that would just enable you to keep pushing, especially on the days when you were training because again I think when we're in competition it's a lot easier to pull shit together and I think when it comes to the training that's when we really have to push because no one's watching in most cases so were there any other apart from breaking it down were there any other little hacks that you used to pull on to to get yourself through 
I think the one thing that gets you through rowing more than anything else is that it is a team sport. Mm. Um, so it's never just about you and you know that you're going through the pain, both physical and mental, with other people. So you do become ex- extremely close to your crew and you're really doing it for one another. And the thing about rowing as well is obviously, well, I always rowed in eights. So four people row one side, four people row the other side, stroke and bow. So if one person in that boat doesn't have their shit together, for lack of a better word, the boat literally just won't go straight or the other side or or members on stroke or bow are having to overcompensate for that person or one side is completely thrown off or the rhythm does not carry down the entire boat. You know, if one person is like a break in the chain, then the whole rhythm of your boat is screwed. So it is so much of a team sport and about working together and there are so many... Yeah, I actually, <laughs> until you said that, I never realized because in many sports, like I was, I've just watched, I don't know if you've seen The Last Dance with uh, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And yeah. it's so interesting when you look at so many different sports where, you know, if it is a team sport, in many respects, one player can carry other players. But I guess in rowing, if you have one team member that tries to overcompensate and carry the whole boat, that essentially fucks everything up. Yeah, yeah. And what a even lesson the way in you collaboration really... and delegation. Yeah, a hundred percent. And even like the only thing that made like the one thing I did love about rowing was the feeling when you really are in like the best rhythm ever. And you can literally feel the whole boat pull under you as everyone like rocks over to take the next stroke. And you hear all of the gates in the oars click at the same time and you hear this like as everyone goes to the finish. Does everyone um, breathe at the same time sound. as well? Like, does it get to that level of synchronous, like synchronous? Yeah. Oh, wow. Breathing is a huge, huge part of it. So you would always take a huge breath out at the finish and then a huge breath out at the catch, which is where you put the oar in the water to pull. And you definitely can hear everyone like at the end, much more aggressive in men's crews, yeah. I would say, but it's definitely there for women as well. But this but, is yeah, an interesting I think I've never thought of before because when you look at breathing, and again, I've, I've seen, the, I've done this in workshops when you get people to do synchronized breathing, it creates levels of connection. Take the sport out of it. Like when you get people breathing mm-hmm. in synchronous, in, in, you know, how, like in synchronous together, it creates deeper levels of connection. So I'm curious, what type of connections, did you notice any t- different type of connections with the team members on your boat versus other you know, types of sports that you were involved in? Was it a different type of relationship? I know it's a strange question, but bear with De- me. No, 100%. I've definitely I've been involved in many different sports. And with rowing, I think because it is so grueling and it is just so challenging from start to finish, it is you, you definitely do have these deep connections with people in, in the boat and really the way you do get to the end is that you know that if you're, you you could be letting someone else yeah. down, you know, if you're not playing your part. But breathing as well, just even in that, uh, being on a rowing machine or on an erg or prepare, preparing for erg week or something like that, as soon as you, one lesson I was always taught is um, breathe before your body tells you you need to breathe. Mm. So don't get into that as 
as you're starting to tire because it's actually too late to be fueling your body with the oxygen it needs. So from the moment you start, you're already doing the deep breathing because you're preparing your body to be able to last the entire duration it needs to. And so you, you were involved in rowing for how long in total? Oh, I I don't even know. I think I started when I was 12 and I finished when I was probably around 21 or 22, so 10 years. And it was at that point you started Mm. to transition more into your your career. Is that right? Yeah, I think I've learned that I try to do something and do it really well. So when I was younger, it was be amazing at rowing. And then I started going to uni and I was really struggling to juggle training 12 times a week, going to uni and having a casual job. Uh, And I was doing rowing, honestly, to try to be the best or to go to the Olympics. But I was a really weird weight for rowing. So I was going to have to put myself on a really extreme diet and it was going to become less enjoyable for me if I was ever going to go to the Olympics. You're quite tall, aren't you? I've kind of factored. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm five foot. I'm five foot 11 and I would yeah. have had to hold my weight at 59 kilos. Mm. And if I made the Australian team, I would have had to show that I can get down to 57. And mm. I was never going to be able to get to 57. I could get to 59 because yeah. you just train so much. I could I could honestly eat pretty much anything and it would just fall off. Um, but it was just not going to be worth it. Yeah. So I decided to give it up um, and then focused on uni and I got an internship Uh, straight after completing my master's degree so it was like I transitioned everything all of my energy and this care factor straight into work has that actually been a part of your expertise like well I should say a part of your your genius where you obsess about things like when you go from one thing to the next because it sounds like where you were with rowing that sounded like you're pretty obsessive to get to that level for that length of time and then transitioning is did you just replace one obsession with another Yeah, I think that is exactly what I did. But it's actually taken me a while to work that out because I really struggle to answer questions around work-life balance Okay, because I just throw absolutely everything into my job. I did that at Bumble and I'm doing it now. So when I think about work-life balance, I don't see it as a bad thing that I just work all the time, but I feel like that's meant to seem like a bad thing. Yeah. But that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, but it does. But it's not. It's not unhealthy for you. You're able to maintain that level of that pace without it affecting or impacting your your health or your personal life. Yeah, I feel I can say yes right now, but I yeah. wonder if I fast forward the clock five years, I would look back on that statement just then and think, God, you were an idiot. How old are you? Can I remember <laughs> me asking? Now we're getting personal. <laughs> I'm 29. 29, okay. And, <laughs> I, and again, I don't normally get personal, but you're married? You, you're not married at this point? You are married? No, I'm not married and I don't have kids. So I think that yep. also plays a huge part in it. You know, I have, I have a partner. Yeah, I have a partner who is really committed to his work and he has to throw 100% into that. Yep. So it's very easy for me to do the same thing and for us to both understand and there's no judgment and there's never never letting one another down because we both just expect the other one yep. to chase their dreams. So, so perfect. it's fine. And I feel like if I can do that right now, I may as well because once I do get married or I do have kids, I would obviously have to restructure my priorities. 
But I think you've, you've nailed something really important here. Like what, what, what you think is balance and what someone else thinks is work-life balance aren't the same thing. And I think oftentimes we let, you know, a Clio magazine dictate to us what actual work-life balance looks like when in reality, you look like you're having an absolute blast. You're having fun yeah. and you're doing it at an obsessive level, but at what sacrifice you're in a relationship where you both have a mutual understanding that that's, that's just, that that's the code of conduct. So that to me sounds like it's working yeah. perfectly. It sounds like it's a lifestyle for you. And so when you got first got yeah, your exactly. corporate career, you moved in, you 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 did quite well academically at school. Is that right? Or no, you actually you had to work really hard, didn't you? Yeah, academically I was not great. It all came down to if I chose to apply myself, right. which I didn't choose to do all that often. I've heard that on my, so on my report I, card somewhere many times before as well. I can relate yeah, to that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, I did not really throw myself into sport. Took Sport was my priority at school. I was probably average in terms of through high school and everything like that. And then when I went to uni, I did a Bachelor of Arts first, which was about me trying to work out what I was interested in. So I didn't do all that well. I definitely carried through the mentality of P's get degrees. That was my <laughs> motto through my undergrad. So passes was what I was going for. And then I did a master's in industrial relations and human resource management. And that was the first time a, kind of a trigger went off in my mind that I was actually interested in this. It was very easy for me to want to apply myself. And then I started doing well and got into this program called the Industry Placement Program, where they match you with a company based on your personality and how they think you'll fit into that organisation. So it's a program run at the University of Sydney and I got put with Citibank to do an internship there. And that changed the game for you? Yeah, definitely. So I loved what I was doing at first and it was a real challenge for me because I was quite young but I was given great exposure at City. Uh, but then I ended off going, I, I went off and did another job at another bank, UBS, but City then asked me to come back and I got an HR generalist position. And I definitely got that probably underqualified, but the woman who hired me, I guess, saw potential in me. So I started managing my own departments. So I think I was around 22 and I was going into meetings with the head of departments at Citibank and basically advising them on what they should be doing within their teams, any disciplinary issues, performance reviews, a real broad mix of things that an HR generalist or business partner would look after. I did definitely have support from my manager, but I really did learn how to fake confidence to be able to get these people to believe in what I was saying. So I really had to have courage and confidence to get certain things over the line that a lot of the time it was the first time I was ever saying that <laughs> you know and it's funny you hear that because you say a lot here a lot of people are talking about fake it till you make it um and I get a lot of young women asking the same question but if a, a young woman was to ask you how how like how do I do what you did like how do I fake that courage in a situation where I'm that 22 year old stereotype or the younger person in a situation where I need to you know have my a game like what's the game plan for that 
I think definitely preparation. So making sure you've got the right people around you. Acknowledge what acknowledge what you don't know and where you don't have the experience and then try to build on that. So before heading into any kind of difficult conversation where I was going to be alone, I would consult people within my team around how I should tackle that or I'd bring my thoughts to them and definitely present them as your own because then you start to get more confident in your initial instinct and first thought. So I I do think preparation tends to arm you with confidence. And I am quite, uh, I, I definitely can think worst case scenario from time to time. So I would think about what's the worst thing that can happen in this conversation and then be prepared for that. And that definitely helps you get through. Okay, great. And in terms of um, moving from HR, because you moved from HR into marketing. And look, I can see the connection, but many people may not. Like, how did you move from HR to marketing? And over what period of time did that transition take place? So that came down to the right introduction. So I did start to feel as though HR wasn't going to be for me long term. I just couldn't see myself doing it. Four years. I feel yeah, classic. Um, anyway, <laughs> classic, I basically got says. introduced. But that's true. Like you can learn a lot in four years. It sounds like you learned a lot that, that you wanted to move on to what was next. Or more importantly, how the I fuck did it happen? That. You tell me. Yeah, it came down to passion. I I looked around and I felt as though people around me were more passionate about it than I was. Right. So I started to doubt what I was doing, and I told a friend. And she introduced me to Whitney Wolf Hurd, who's the founder and CEO of Bumble. And it was at the time where Bumble was in its infancy, but it was exploring other markets to invest in. And Australia was one of those. So after a call with Whitney, where she told me about Bumble, I really believed in her and Bumble's mission. And she asked me to launch Bumble into the Australian market. So I didn't have any experience in marketing at all. I'd never planned an event or activation. I'd never even attended a nice event. Like a friend's birthday party was as far as it kind of went for me. Um, But she just really, really trusted me. And because I was hired in the early stages, I was able to really connect with people in America who'd started Bumble up there so I could learn from them and apply a lot of those learnings to what I was doing in Australia. So the only real transferable skills I could pull over from HR, I didn't, I didn't think they would be as useful as the, at the time, but as time went on, I realized how useful they really were from being in a back office function at a large global firm. I think you, you you learn a lot about risk and what you should and shouldn't do. And especially with hiring people and how to treat staff and things like that. Those are very valuable lessons I suppose to learn when you first enter the workforce so I could carry a lot of that across so when I started to hire people on the ground in Australia I knew what to do and how to approach that I could go about planning an event and have a decent idea of you know what sorts of insurances and those sorts of things I would need not pretty sexy stuff like the boring things I'd really learned a lot about working in a bank so those sorts of things I feel really helped me because maybe a few things could have gone wrong there if I didn't have those sorts of skills. But in terms of the front-facing, client-facing stuff and actually getting into the marketing, I didn't have any prior experience there. I was 
winging it, I guess. And it came back to how I felt when I first started at City where I was faking a lot of my confidence and I was making a lot of assumptions. But working for an app, you can learn very quickly what works and what doesn't work. So I know a lot of people say knowledge is power, but I actually think naivety is sometimes power. And I think that if (laughs) if I had known... I, I had no foresight into what was about to happen. And if I had had that, I don't know if I would have said yes. So I'm, I'm almost glad. I think one of the most powerful perspectives you can have is one of the naive optimists, you know. You know and it's, yeah, you know, that's me. It, it sounds like it was perfect. <laughs> I can I'm, put that in my bio. <laughs> naive optimist, I love it. Um, so how did you get the gig? Because Bumble at this point, like they clearly were, you know, they already had traction. They were already quite significant in the US. How did you, did you, did they just throw the role at you based on your, who you were? Um, or did you actually have to pitch them for the role? No, I just got a great introduction from a girl I'd gone to school with. She definitely talked me up to be far better than I really was. Um, and I should bring her along with me to introduce me for anything I do in the future. Um, but she really sold me to Whitney and just told her that she thought I would be great and Whitney believed her. But it sounds so airy-fairy, but when I spoke to Whitney on the phone, my whole body got goosebumps and I can remember exactly what I was looking at and I just felt this strange connection and all the things she was saying we could almost weirdly finish one one another's sentences about how we'd go about launching it and what we'd do without ever having met and every time I talk to her about that conversation she recalls it the same way and I remember her saying I've got a really good feeling about this I've got a really good feeling about you and there was just this strange immediate trust but that was probably the greatest lesson I ever could have learned from her that in order to scale a business you really do have to trust other people Mm. and she from the moment it all happened basically just said you know this is yours I want you to take this you know more about this country than I ever will so you know apply your own um, perspective to it all and yeah, she really just let me run free with it. But as I said, with an app, you can see very quickly if it's working or if it's not working. And I'm not sure if timing played a large part in that. But from the moment I started at Bumble, it really did gain immediate traction and momentum. And I think because it had such a powerful mission and story behind it, it was something that Australians immediately wanted to really invest in and they could align with. So it just happened to all work. And then for those people who aren't familiar with Bumble, obviously it's a dating app, but the the point of difference with Bumble, which you kind of pointed out last time, was it empowers the woman to be able to make the decision. Yeah. So on Bumble, women make the first move. So when you connect with when a male and a female connects on the dating app, the woman has to talk to the man first. But you also can have same sex matches and either person can speak first but you've got the other person has to respond within 24 hours so there's less stuffing around waiting for 
who's going to be the one to make the first move and then yeah. if, it, if the other person doesn't respond within 24 hours you know there's none of this waiting game where people get into the habit of saying oh you know you've got to wait three days before you reply to that message <laughs> so it just takes yeah, a lot of that out that gives you 17 hours otherwise you lose them yeah right and yeah. so and i guess at the time it could have been considered to be a big risk for you because the lead app at that time was tinder and tinder had its own reputation did that play any role in terms of your concerns moving into a new market like that it definitely did. I actually wasn't going to take the call with Whitney. This friend had suggested it to me and I'd actually parked it a little from my mind and thought, no, that isn't for me. I'd never been on a dating app before and I felt as though Tinder's reputation, I guess I can say it now because I don't technically work for an app, but I thought that their reputation was pretty negative. If I still worked for Bumble, I probably wouldn't say that, but I guess I can now. So I think that was still I very was fucking diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I was, I was hesitant. And I think even a few of my friends were thinking, you know, what is she doing? She's Because you do have that girl next door kind of look about you. And, you know, if you're looking at an app and a dating app, you wouldn't necessarily associate the two together. But now knowing the app in that way and knowing you that way, they're kind of, it almost seems like a, a perfect match in that respect. Yeah. And I, I do feel that definitely was part of the point. You yeah. know, when I first spoke to Whitney, I, I, I even thought I, I would never use Tinder. So how could I position Bumble as something I would want to use or all my friends would want to use. And one of the first things we did was get all these T-shirts with Bumble written across the front and I gave them to all of my friends and I would feel confident walking down the street wearing a T-shirt that says Bumble, but I don't think I would feel confident walking down the street wearing a T-shirt that said Tinder. <laughs> and for any of my friends that didn't want to wear the T-shirt, yeah. I thought, okay, I've got to do more here. You mm. know, if they're not confident to wear this, then maybe they perceive this as being similar to other dating apps that are out there. They're not aware of the, the differentiating factors. So I need to push those more. And so how did you see Bumble change the landscape of, of the dating app market in Australia or even dating in Australia? I think one of the defining factors with Bumble was we were never trying to position it as just a dating app. It was a social networking mm. app and it was also a movement and it was all about empowering women to go after what they want. If we could empower women to make the first move in dating, then perhaps we could empower women to make the first move in all facets of their lives. You know, if you've started to implement this behaviour where you're used to just throwing something out there, then maybe you can go into a conversation at work and advocate for yourself to get a higher salary. Maybe you will put yourself forward for a job that you don't feel like you're entirely capable of, but you're just learning these behaviours that are about putting yourself out there and just seeing what happens. So it was all about instilling that belief in women and, and did you see it that definitely changed. Did you see that start to move through? Yeah, we actually, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but we used to do this survey where, oh, what was it? I'm usually really good at remembering numbers. I think it was some, I don't want to throw them out there. I'll get them wrong, actually. But it was about women feeling confident uh, to make the first move. It was something like how many women 
feel they've missed out on an opportunity because they have not made the first move. And we did it Mm. about a year in and then we did it two and a half years in and the statistics had shifted. Um, So obviously Bumble can't claim, I don't think Bumble can claim having done that. but but to be able to measure that in a meaningful way, that's quite significant. Yeah, yeah. So we the dial had shifted, which is great. Um, but I I do feel so much has changed for women. I can't talk like prior to really paying attention to this for myself. But even just over the past five years, I do feel as though, especially in business, you know, there's so many amazing women out there, and we're really being able to hear their stories and. Bumble Beers, which was the business networking side of Bumble, also loved that and really got to play a part in that and raising the profiles of Australian business women. So it just became so much more than what other mm. traditional dating apps could say they were doing. And you ended up staying with Bumble for about three years, is that right? Three and a half years? Yeah, three years. And, the, and by the end of your stead, you had become Bumble had become the number two or the number one app at this point in the country? for two the number two app wish i could say one but yeah but there were three that, million registrations exactly but look, look let's not be too hard on yourself <laughs> you know you came into the app space <laughs> no app marketing experience whatsoever and then you essentially you know you're the company lead on pioneering you know what is now considered one of the most successful international dating and social networking apps you know in a country that is not an easy place to get any kind of market share whatsoever and so, you know, that's not an easy feat to do. But what do you do after that? Like, because uh, did you start to get bored at the end of your tenure at Bubble? Is that why you end up moving on? The three-year, four-year itch? Did it come on? Yeah, the three-year itch. I just felt, <laughs> I don't know, something must be wrong with me. But not at all. I just felt as though I had done what I'd said I would do. Yeah. So I had committed to launching this brand in Australia. And the goal was to make sure everyone had heard of it. And at the time I started, I'd ask my friends and no one had heard of it. And now I feel like you'd be pretty hard pressed to find someone who hasn't heard of Bumble. And I did start to feel as though I was repeating myself a little bit. So we'd do one event or activation and we'd really learn how to roll, roll them out. And it was becoming a little bit repetitive. The events were obviously so different, but the process wasn't. And obviously that's what I was mainly working on. So I had had offers throughout, um, which I declined, but one of them led to me having a conversation with uh, the guys over in the US and then um, they had said that I could become involved with other APAC markets. So I began to do that and got to launch Bumble in New Zealand, Bali, the Philippines, Hong Kong, and then I was starting to work on Singapore. So I really liked doing that and that fulfilled me for a while. But again, it was somewhat repetitive and probably wasn't bringing me the joy that I initially thought it would. So when I I was then approached by Laura Henshaw and Steph Claire Smith, who started Keep It Cleaner, and they offered me the role to be chief marketing officer and to help launch Keep It Cleaner outside of Australia. So I just felt, okay, wow, now this is an opportunity for me to almost do what I've done Mm. at Bumble, but in reverse. So 
I was never really able to call the shots in terms of which market we would go to next and why. But I'd obviously learned a lot about how to do that whilst at Bumble. So now it's really great because I'm able to look into all the data at Keep It Cleaner and see where we're gaining traction and actually advise on where we should go next and how we should do that. So there are certain things that you're sheltered from when you don't work in a company's HQ. So, you know, I could never influence the way the product looked. And also with a dating app, it's pretty obvious how it works, you know, and it doesn't really change. <laughs> so there are just certain things that you're not able to influence. So Keep It Cleaner had were able to offer a lot of those kinds of things that I really wanted to get involved in. So that's why I decided to to take the leap because I just wanted to challenge myself again and see if we could recreate some of the success that Bumble's had in a slightly different way at Kick. Mm. It's almost like the um, the girl next door. It's you, you all literally look like the girls next door, the three of you, the way that you present as a brand. Has that played a part in the, the synergy that you guys have as a team? Because you all seem to be very uh, along the same lines. I think we are very different, really. Okay, I should I the should clarify that statement because Paul just looked at me like that and I was like, okay, that could have sounded like a stereotypical sexist statement. Now, before I say that, what I mean by that is you, you you're all successfully you're all successful female, um, you know, who've who've pursued their own purpose and their own career, and you've done it at a very high level. But you seem to have come together in a very a very unique way. But you're all quite different, is the point you're making. <laughs> Yeah, we are definitely different. We all work in quite different ways, which I think is really good. And also I feel as though we see ourselves, the three of us, as quite equal. So it's interesting because we can definitely get into debate-like conversations (laughs) around what we're going to do next but then really have to be considered in thought and thoughtful um when it comes to each other's opinions which is definitely it's actually great because that was what I was probably missing at Bumble you know being able to have those kinds of conversations able to have those a certain level yeah 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 so it is um I, I think the obviously the best thing about the three of us is we all have the same belief in keep it cleaner and we all want it to go to the same place, you know, we're all laser focused on what the mission is and how we're going to do that. But yeah, we definitely have different approaches and work styles. So I think that means that we're normally able to get the best outcome for the brand because we've taken little pieces of what one another think and then put it together uh, to come up with the best result. And so what's the plan now? You've been with Keep It Cleaner for about six months. And um, is this all yeah. under wraps or is there an, is there a, some kind of an international launch underway? Yeah, I feel as though when you work for a startup, even at Bumble, three years, 20 years, <laughs> six months, two years, I don't know, it just <laughs> feels like a very long time. I know, right? But um, we are working on some really exciting um, advancements to the app, which I think everyone will love. We definitely are getting ready for international expansion, but with COVID, that has created a bit of a handbrake moment for us. But I, it, it almost was a blessing in disguise because we could really work on building the internal team and laying all the right foundations. So when we do 
come out with these new changes or we are ready to go overseas, we have all the right resources and tools and people in place um, in Australia. So that's what we're, we're working on at the moment. But in a couple of months, there'll be some very exciting announcements. And have you, the, the more you do, are you putting yourself out there more, more and more as a, a, role, a role model um, in, the, in the female entrepreneur space is, or is this a, a bit of a new spot for you? I feel as though I was so fortunate to get the profile or platform, I suppose, at Bumble and to be able to speak to those kinds of things. I will be forever grateful for that. And I think I could also so confidently walk away from Bumble because I knew what I had achieved there and I was so proud of that and that would always be my story. So it's great that I can carry that on but also go on to try to achieve new things as well. So I still get to do some amazing things, you know, like this podcast, for example, and I'll always want to do that. And wherever I can be, you know, wherever I can offer any kind of advice or experiences for other women out there, you know, I'll always want to do that. Can you see yourself at some point doing your own thing? Yeah, (laughs) I definitely could see myself doing that and a few people asked me why I didn't do that when I left Bumble but as I said at the start you know being aware of what experience you don't have I think is extremely important and for me not working with you know the owner or the founder of the company every day that was definitely an interesting position to be in so I felt as though it was a bit of a gap for me having people close by that really would hold me accountable. I felt like I needed to get better at being in that kind of an environment because I hadn't had it for so long and it would almost be a bit risky for me to go out and do my own thing without having more experience under my belt. So I don't feel like I could do that and do it to the best of my ability right now. So I am so focused on achieving as much as possible at keep it cleaner and really believe we can do it and then you know once we hit that goal goal post maybe i'll do something else i'm not sure you're a little bit of a perfectionist aren't you a massive one (laughs) (laughs) michelle i've got to say i've enjoyed the second conversation even more than the first uh if that's even possible if there's one piece of advice that you'd love to give to um you know people of all shapes and sizes, but especially young women. And this is one of the reasons I love your story so much is you you do have a very strong story of discipline from a very early age in sport. You've transitioned into academic, not being strong, but still being able to prevail into business, pivoting hard from, you know, HR into marketing. Like, I think you should probably, look, I'm going to assume that you probably don't give yourself the credit that you probably are due with the amount of work that you've done and you're probably consistently looking forward. But for other girls out there who can see the work that you've done and see how far you've come and how far you've gone on your own journey, who look at you and go far out, she's so inspiring. There's no possible way I could ever even come close to scratching her or touching her. Like, what advice would you give to that young girl? I think... You, you do just have to be willing to back yourself. And for me, I'll always assess a decision or a risk or a choice. And if the only reason I'm not taking it is due to fear, then that is not a good enough reason to not do it. So if the only thing holding you back from something is fear of 
that risk or the unknown, that's that's not a good enough reason to say no. So when I was making the decision to join Keep It Cleaner, the fear of leaving Bumble was the only thing that was holding me back from it. That wasn't a good enough reason to not go for it. So what's the saying? Don't fear of, it's out of, oh, it's really good. I'm trying to remember it. <laughs> got it. It's on the tip of your tongue. It's about it's about failure and success. Oh, better better to try and fail than to have never tried at all. Yes. Oh, That's great it. piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that on a bumper sticker. For I got there job. in the end. We got there in the yeah. end. Ladies and gentlemen, our yeah. absolute pleasure on Unstoppable, Michelle Battersby. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. And thank you. Second time round, it was better. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.